0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of My First Sketch. I'm Josh Heilm. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Get it automatically. Make it easy on yourself. It would be really cool if you rate it five stars and leave a review wherever you get the podcast. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com myfirstsketch. Follow along on Twitter at myfirstsketch. Head to myfirstsketch.com where I'm tr- constantly trying to keep it updated and new information there. Any questions, thoughts, recommendations, feel free to email me at josh@myfirstsketch.com at and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. So as 2019 winds down, I would love to hear your favorite comedy moments from the past year. It could be a live show at a festival like Philly Sketchfest, or anywhere else, something that you saw on television, something on the internet, whatever, just your favorite comedy moment of 2019. You can shoot me an email at josh at myfirstsketch.com, and I can share it with everyone at myfirstsketch.com and phillysketchfest.com. Let's celebrate some of the fun that we had this year and put a little spotlight on something positive. Today's guest is Andrew Hall, currently a member of the Midnight Garners League, based out of Washington, D.C. The Midnight Garners League will be performing Thought Leaders on Sunday, December 8th at the D.C. Improv at 7 p.m. Andrew's first sketch is a video called Lewis Crispers from November of 2011. So I'll play a clip of the audio from that video, but for all the context, I very much recommend that you head to myfirstsketch.com slash videos where it's posted. So let's go to the sketch. Uh- Dear Louise Crispers.
1: Dear Dear Louise.
0: We think that you are so cute and so cool and crispy.
1: And you're fun and funny and hilarious and
0: So funny.
1: Nothing's crispier than you, Crispy.
0: Remember that time we took that picture of you in front of that yellow background with your favorite dog?
1: I remember that. <laughs> Let's go to that picture right now.
0: Crispy Nuggets.
1: You're my favorite. I've Blue never had a friend like you, and I probably never will, and I cherish every minute.
0: Hey, Andrew. How's it going? All right, so tell me where this video comes from. What's, what's the idea behind it?
1: Okay. It goes a little further back than the video, um, but I started stand-up probably around eight or nine years ago, and there's one guy in the video who shows up at the very end and like lifts his shirt up to show his non-existent abs. Uh, that's my buddy Zach Claywell, and we were doing a dual-host open mic on Thursdays. And when we started doing that, we started doing YouTube promo, we started making specific videos, we would have themed nights, and this just kind of fell under the umbrella of shit we were doing when we were bored or trying to make comedy content or be funny. And so that's kind of, you know, us hanging out at his house with a camera was the normal thing for me to be doing at that time.
0: So... Where do you like where do you start to do stand up comedy then?
1: Um Yeah, I started when I lived in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and I would go to Charlotte probably three times a week for stand up and try to do one local show in either Rock Hill uh, area, my hometown. Uh, and the scene there is just a nightmare.
0: Uh, I, I, I mean, you say, first off, you say a town I've never heard of in South Carolina, and then you say South Carolina. I'm not expecting much from a comedy scene.
1: Truly, truly nothing to be expected. I mean, it's if someone needs to start doing stand-up, you've got to start somewhere, and what a better place than an area with no bar of expectation. <laughs> there was a... Uh, <laughs> There was one mic that I think still operates on a Tuesday, but, you know, eight years ago when I was there, there'd be 15 spots, and I would try to get my name on first, because if 15 comics didn't show up, I would put my name on again in the 14th or 15th spot. Oh, interesting. So I would get to do 10 minutes of comedy instead of five, because there just wasn't enough comics in the city to fill 15 spots. So... We were working with that, and me and my buddy Zach loved comedy. And this is, I mean, it's very true for uh, what the Midnight Gardeners are today is, I've never seen comedy as strictly stand-up. So when we're trying to do themed shows, we would call it Midnight and Roses, a night of sensual comedy. And we would put tea candles on every table and fake roses and play... Uh, genuine's pony before comics come on just like adding what we can to a scene that has nothing and so the video content was just a part of that was just constantly trying to a new avenue to be funny we would just chase with everything we had
0: okay so uh, let's go back to the beginning uh do you have like an earliest memory of comedy for yourself
1: yeah um i remember being at a Not a family reunion, but a large family get together. And I fully forget the situation, but I think like my aunt walked into the men's bathroom and meant to be the woman's. Um, And I was probably like seven. And I told that story to a table of relatives. I was like, oh, you know, Jackie walks in, blah, 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 whatever I said. And then everybody laughed. And then I went and sat back down at like the kids' table. And I heard my aunt say, Now, Andrew, with comedic timing, he has it, but his sister, uh. (laughs) And I was like, damn, I'm the funny one. Nice. (laughs) Uh, And after that, it was like, I did uh, stand up at a school talent show in like fourth grade. How'd that go? Um, uh, Pretty good. I wore like a little suit and I had uh, cards. And so I was just like reading some pretty, you know, non offensive fourth grade jokes. But I mean, you wrote yourself? Not all of them. Some of them were like joke book jokes because I I don't know how comedy works. But um, sometimes I had had said some funny things and my dad either remembered them or wrote them down. So I think there was probably two to three originals, uh, the ones that weren't getting the big laughs. But, (laughs) you know, so it, it started there. I remember getting Class Clown in fourth grade. And, uh, you know, things that's probably when it started was third or fourth grade, was when I really had to the kid with glasses needed something other than glasses to be remembered for.
0: Uh what were you into growing up? What was your fandom?
1: It's not really PC anymore, but was a big fan of Cosby. Uh that was one of the things we had in our house. A huge Marx Brothers, three Stooges, um a lot of that classic style of comedy that older, you know my parents were very christian so you know i wasn't getting into george carlin when a lot of kids were cuz it was still a pretty clean house but you know the the comedy that seemed to as far as comedy goes stand the test of time was regularly funny was liked by all was clever enough to not fade away into obscurity um and then i also just loved movies so it wasn't just stand up but i would love to watch i watch like f- five different movies a week you know if i could for years and years and i just loved funny movies more than i loved action or a very boring drama or something like that
0: absolutely yeah uh like what kind of movies were like the big ones for you as a kid
1: as a as a adolescent i remember like dude where's my car really breaking the mold for me as far as like comedy goes. I remember thinking this is like the funniest movie in the world. Um, You know, I can't, I mean, I was truly like television and film were like my full escape. So there's nothing too specific. It's just this blur of like never ending content that I Mm -hmm. needed. Uh, But you know, the Simpsons were on TV. So it would be that if I wanted to watch a movie, you know, I would want it to be, I watched duck soup every day for like an entire summer. Uh, for, you know, just whatever I could get my hands on that would entertain me a week after watching it.
0: Now, okay, so I want to talk about the Marx Brothers because I, I don't think I've seen any of their movies to be honest.
1: You're missing out. I,
0: I know, like, uh, and listening th- through the podcast unspooled, where two Marx Brothers movies have already come up. I'm like, man, I have to, I have to dive in. Like, my only real knowledge of the Marx Brothers is uh PBS would run uh reruns of you bet your not your bet your life as you bet your life uh shows like game show from the 50s mm
1: and um he was, like the host or something yeah
0: and that was like that's my biggest understanding of groucho
1: oh it's i mean the apples and oranges my good sir it i'm is- sure the, the videos are like, it's that perfect, so you start to get sound, and these are all like vaudeville guys, so now it's well-written jokes, you can do visual gags, you can add special effects noises, and so when people think about black and white comedy and they think of the Three Stooges, I mean, it's funny, but they're lost, because the Marx Brothers is like the fully realized version of what comedy on film can be. It's clever and it's well-written and there's sight gags. There are men being cartoons because cartoons were harder to make. So it's just like, you know, their characters were well-defined. I mean, I'll, I could go on about them endlessly, but it's... A, so much of it holds up minus, you know, you know, white men existing. But, you know... They're, outside of that realm the comedy is there the satire is there the absurdity is there and it's all it's all so quick moves so fast and it's just silly
0: um so yeah so why why duck soup why is that the one that you watched every day for a summer then
1: uh probably because we, we had it on vhs but i feel <laughs> like we had some more but there's something about uh, the the gags in that one are so much funnier. The um the characters are really well defined. So you have like Harpo with his horns and is making his goofy faces. Um, Groucho plays like a dictator of a nation called Fredonia, and he's trying to send them to war. And I mean, I'm too young to really figure it out now, but at my current age, I realize this may have shaped every political belief I have, which is it's all just a <laughs> sham and a joke and, you know, the fools and morons are running it. Um, but it might be the one with the most cohesive storyline. And so you start in a peaceful place and you see them going to war, uh, but the stakes aren't really high. So it's still, the war is funny. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's just, a, it's just a, one of the better ones where if you strip the comedy away there's still a story and if you look at the story it's worth telling with jokes
0: um and then what is the first driving step to actually get you on stage to do stand up
1: uh um that's a an interesting thing it's i've been a performer my whole life so it was i was in a band before i was in a band i was you know doing a lot of stuff with a local church so i would be doing sermons for youth group and sermon planning and giving presentations on things and then that faded away and i went to this band and this band toured and we did a lot of good stuff and then when the band broke up i started to do hip-hop because i wanted to do music and i needed to do a one-man thing and then when that kind of faded away and lost steam Stand-up was a thing where I could get on stage, I didn't need to rely on other people, I didn't have to lug around gear, and it wasn't like a 30-minute, labor-intensive set that I could only do once or twice a month. I mean, I could get up and do it whenever it was available. So it just filled the need for me to get up and perform, which was the main drive for almost every decision I was making as far as what am I doing today and why. Did you do any like theater or anything as a kid? Not really, which is kind of wacky. It was like I did some thespian stuff, but I was always behind the scenes. Our drama teacher loved to do musicals, and I cannot sing. So I never wanted to apply. I never even wanted to sing back up. It was too nerve-wracking. So I just like would avoid that. And it it felt like every high school production we did was a musical. And I just like... Yeah, that's certainly not my calling, but hanging out with the theater kids was. So I was around it, but I wasn't deeply, deeply involved. And for a long time, I thought that's what performing was. So I was like, well, I guess I'm just not going to be able to do that.
0: So then where does this drive to perform come from then?
1: Uh, need attention. Daddy wanted it all <laughs> the time.
0: <laughs> just simply um, that. Just...
1: I wouldn't say simply that, but it's... um. I've I've yeah, I've felt out of place for my entire life and I believe there's a social anxiety element to it where it's like if I'm at a party and there's fifty people in the room, I'm freaking out because that's forty-nine other people who could be judging me, could be looking at me, could be talking about me, could be talking about anything else. There's just like random variables popping off all over the place. But if I stand up on a chair and I start talking to everybody at once. I know everyone's looking at me, and I'm controlling the situation. And that is very chill. So I would rather have 50 people looking at me than me being in a sea of strangers. And I think it's that sort of survival element where at the party, I'm not going to talk to everybody and have a lot of fun. But I found a way for everybody at the party to know who I am. And I didn't have to talk to them all individually. So I was like, oh, okay, if I just make a scene and say something and state my case for the way weird way I see the world, everyone will know what I'm about and I won't have to quietly tell them because I was straight edge and vegetarian and you know, this thing and that thing and liked this music and, and, you know, hated this element of something and just walking up to people and them not thinking them, not knowing that I'm a weirdo was daunting. So I would try to do everything in my power to just let them know as quickly and as abruptly as possible that you're in for a weird time when you're talking to me. And performing was the fastest way to get to that end.
0: Yeah, that analogy of uh, 50 people in a party versus 50 people watching you has come up multiple times like through this podcast. And I think it's very interesting that like the idea of controlling your social situation, like not having to introduce yourself one by one to 50 people versus hey let's just get it all out there let's just do it now in front of everybody let me make a scene and let's go let's go from there kind of thing
1: totally and i and i mean i i'm not it's not a um it's truly not that desire that everyone needs to know and understand everything about me but if we were all in a in a room and everyone saw a car crash now we have a common tether for conversation But that doesn't always happen. So instead of being like, oh, the weather, do you like sports? What's this thing? I would rather sacrifice myself to be like, let me say something weird. When you come up to me, we can reference the thing I just did. And now we're two steps into a conversation and that now we can start to move. Now we're greasing the wheels and we're talking about film and art and the moon and what you did last week, and we didn't have to fumble through the bullshit and it's a it's a sword I was always willing to fall on,
0: yeah, I think it was even just a couple of weeks ago when I went up to n y c sketch fest, like talking to various people like after shows i like I told the same anecdote like seven times to seven different people, and that was so exhausting and annoying to me for for whatever reason this point that i I made to people, I had to say to everyone, and like oh yeah just like that social like awkwardness of it I, like I, like by the time I left and I just got back on the train to go back to Philadelphia I was just like oh man like how can people stand me like
1: well that comes down to how do you stand yourself and then a lot of performers have this internalized self-hatred which is the fuel that gets them to perform to try to burn that fuel out so they don't have it anymore or something to that degree it's. I don't think it's so much people are annoyed by the stories. It, you just wish uh, maybe that story should be better. Or when I tell it ten times, it loses the flair. For me, the storyteller. But you know, it's it's just a damn drag sometimes to just you know. Some people are can turn it on and turn it off, and some people it's just you know. Oh man, if, if I don't say something. This is going to be even weirder. And the things I'm saying, I don't like, but it's the lesser of two evils. And there we are. Here we go.
0: So after going through uh, music uh, and dabbling in a bit of hip hop, uh, how long are you doing stand up in South Carolina?
1: Um, I would probably say two to three years. Um, I was bopping around. I was doing my time. It's very... um, not mature there's no checks and balances yeah there's certainly jokes i was telling then that i despise and would not be happy if i heard a comic say in 2019 but um you know it it moves and it it goes and there was a day where i was heading to an open mic the thursday mic to host and i got in a motorcycle accident and i broke all the bones in my left arm and shattered my nose and you know cuts and scrapes and breaks, but I made it out. Uh, And then after that, the recovery was tricky, and I didn't have a car, and I needed to get a job, and I took a nice long break from stand-up. Because I was like, what was I rushing to that almost killed me? And it was like, yeah, uh, a not-incredible mic that you spend a lot of time working towards, and, you know, none of the comics really cared to come see me or double check on me. So, why am I giving so much of myself if I'm the only one doing that? And I uh I took an uh a, a healthy little respite. And then when I was going to move to DC, I saw that that was coming and I was like, "Okay, I should probably start doing stand up here because when I go to DC, I'm going to do stand up there and I need to, you know, shake the dust off and get some jokes back in my belt." and see if I can't make, you know, this motorcycle accident funny and stuff like that. I mean, I did stand up sparingly between, but it was, it was no longer three to four times a week. It was once a month, Mm. twice a month for maybe four months and then off for four months, do a mic, take a two month break, just, you know, very off the rhythm. Um, But when I knew I was going to move, I was like, I need to jump back in this and, start to figure out how everything moves again. And then when I came to DC, that was like the full thing I did outside of work.
0: Uh, So what's your first step of like, how do you find the spots in DC when you get there?
1: Oh, you know, a rat knows where the trash is. Uh, (laughs) So it's, I just was like, you know, I Googling DC open mics, open mic sign up, trying to like, you know, use Facebook to find people or see where smaller shows are and I also was trying to get plugged into the house show scene so when I would be at house shows I would ask if people knew any comics and so kind of like puzzle piece together how to get on sign up lists and where people were hanging out um, which was also how I learned the city and that's how I learn every city I go to is. You know, I don't know neighborhoods and bars, but if I'm going to five open mics a night or a week, not a night, uh, if I'm going to five open mics a week, that's five new neighborhoods, five new bars, five new vibes. And after three or four months of that, you kind of are learning where the speed traps are, where the traffic gets bad, the shortcuts to get to places. And it's such a better reason to get out of the house than anything else that I can think of, truly. Um, but that's just been, I was just, you know, starting to plug in. Once I did one mic, would ask eight comics, what other mics do you do? Where are they? Pull out my phone Wednesday, here, here, and here. Okay. Thursday, it's here. Okay. And would just then make it a part of my schedule to do as many of these mics that I can.
0: Do you remember the first stand-up joke that you wrote? Like, as an adult, like, going on stage in South Carolina?
1: Hmm. Who that is tricky I've got some good footage of some early stand up stuff I can I can remember I did I was on vacation in New York when I did my first stand up set because I didn't want to do it in South Carolina or Charlotte North Carolina because I already knew the scene would be so small mm-hmm. so if I came up and bombed people are going to remember it so I went I was in New York and I was like yeah I can do nothing here and no one cares, which is the state slogan. <laughs> and, um, and I remember there was certainly a Lindsay Lohan joke at the time. That goes to show you how old I am. Uh, Cause I was just writing stuff uh, pretty quickly, trying to get something out, probably a joke about vegetarianism, but I can't, I can remember the joke, the earliest joke that I hate that I wrote but not really anything that like constantly would like kill. Cause that took a minute to get to. So a lot of it goes forgotten yeah. as it should.
0: Yeah. The, the process of, Oh, this didn't work. Let's move, just move on. But like just keep going. Let's just keep generating material. Just keep going. And
1: Oh yeah. We gotta, we gotta bail on this. We gotta <laughs> find something that works. Maybe like the first, it might've been something along the lines of, um, You guys ever think an Ethiopian would walk by a pizza hut and go, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Oh, gosh. This isn't a hut. It's a fucking building full of pizza like that, you know. And then that's it. What was that? 20 seconds. I had about 500 of those just (laughs) launching them out of a can and no one asked for.
0: I, I, I was expecting that to be so much worse. <laughs> like, because I remember, like, uh, when the, the UPC uh, really became standardized, like in the 90s, there was this awful joke that was going around of, like, the UPC is actually like a Somalian family portrait. Uh. Like, which is just awful and disgusting. And, like, oh. so, I, like, for whatever reason, you saying Ethiopians and Pizza Hut, I, I was immediately, like, expecting the worst.
1: And that's like the whole ethos is I was trying to be like, what's this whole white male comic struggle is how do I be offensive without offending? What's taboo that I can touch on to prove I can get my foot into hot water without burning myself or whatever it is that people are trying to prove with comedy. And a big part of that for me was being funny and saying things with good misdirects and good twists and good zings. You know, I wanted to keep people on a path going forward and then jump a a light year away. And that was, I was always a misdirect is the best punchline for the style of comedy that I have like fallen into writing. Mm -hmm. So it was like, well, if I start talking about Ethiopian culture or, you know, starvation, famine type of things in South Carolina, people expect me to go very negative and very racist. And I just was like, well, what if I draw the simple parallel between hut and hut? Because Americans are saying hut with no recourse because we're, we don't care, you know? And that's, I, you know, that's certainly not the message that was getting across, but that was the intent in writing is like, what if we called pizza hut almost anything else, but that's not the way to, make a south carolina crowd laugh so you had to like play to your audience and also i'm like 20 barely made it out of public high school not very well educated never went to college so you know my growth process has been different than most but as far as like having a full global understanding i had none
0: right so like and then being oh i mean as we're talking about like the first joke and being in south carolina like where those rooms constantly like on PC, like, you know what you, we would consider like red state humor. Oh yeah. Like, and uh, someone that came up, like, you know, I'm getting the impression that, that, you know, there was a religious background, but you also mentioned being straight edge and vegetarian. So that might trick, like trick a couple other boxes, but like growing up in that scene, how was that like a bit of a culture, like maybe not culture shocks, not the right word, but like of, you know, what you were trying to create versus what others were trying to create. Like what were your impressions of that?
1: So there was, I was certainly trying to create something other people weren't. uh, And that, that was, you know, that's been the thing I've always been doing. That's not just comedy. That is, you know, being in high school and, and not drinking and not smoking weed. And, you know, Listening to this bizarre music and even in middle school being like, you know, getting my ear pierced only because no other guy in school had it. Um, So I was always on this journey of being like, I know what I know and I believe what I know. And so whatever other people are doing, I truly don't care. And I probably think it's stupid Uh, because, you know, I also had a real sense of self arrogance at the time. Um, But there, you know, certainly is a culture shock as far as when people are telling jokes, I'm like, I know that's hack. I know that's garbage. Okay, you you're kind of, you know, I didn't know the terminology, but I was like, Oh, you're punching down. You know, and I I would just call it a bad joke. But now I know why it was bad. But there certainly is a lot of like, you know, the punchline is like, and why wasn't my wife in the kitchen the whole time? Mm. And that type of stuff still gets a pop and it gets enough of a pop that it positively will reinforce a person to stay writing like that. And so when I was trying to do comedy, that's why we were doing like video stuff, man on the street stuff. We're trying to theme a show in a way that when people come in, it is not, it is a new environment that they might not have experienced, but it is still a comedy environment. But something might happen that they're not used to. And hopefully that is, you know, like you're not going to hear a bunch of women bashing jokes or, you know, and that's not to say that I didn't have any or other comics didn't, but we certainly, you know, the white comics that are trying, that are a year into comedy, trying to find a way to cleverly say the N word are not getting time on these mics. So, you know, we're, we're doing our part to weed out some of the bad, but you know, it's also hard when you have a group of 10 and you need eight comics for a show. And five of them are dog shit people. You just kind of, you know, a little bit of sugar with the poison, but you know, there was certainly a big, I'm was an alien in the scene. There was a lot of, I'm learning this with you, but I'm looking at it in a way that you guys aren't. And that's what, Truly, that's why I'm still doing it, and a lot of people there aren't because I was chasing something a little bit bigger than the laugh of the night.
0: So, then as you head to uh Washington, D.C., uh, let's talk about how your story enters with the Midnight Gardeners, which is so, how I know you from.
1: Yeah, these wild boys were just out here cutting up. Uh, no, it's um. I was doing stand-up here for about a year, and all the other guys were probably doing it for a year or two years here, Um, but I had been doing comedy in Charlotte for probably two to three years, so I showed up with a little bit under my belt, Uh, but again, the DC scene was just coming into DC from the suburbs, so a lot of the comedy used to be in Fairfax, Arlington, Alexandria, Montgomery County... And none of it was happening within the District of Columbia. And when I came in, that's when a couple mics started to pop up in the District of Columbia itself. I remember doing Big Hunt when there's like eight audience members.
0: Hmm. And
1: if you're in D.C., now you're like, that is like, there's not a day on the in a calendar year where that's going to happen. Even if it's like snowing two feet outside, that'll be a sold out show. And so it's like, that was one of the first places that was really successful. Um, But I was out here running to these mics, trying to put together this scene, trying to do two a night, three a night, one a night, take a day off, do two more. Like all the other young comics were. And um, I remember I was at a brewery show in... Some, somewhere. I couldn't tell you where. I remember what it looks like inside. Um, but I saw Max Wolfson doing some comedy and I was like, This guy's always funny. And he was wearing a Beastie Boy shirt that was in the same font as the New York Knicks. And I was like, and this guy's a fucking virgin. That's hilarious. <laughs> so okay. Um But it was like, after the show, I was like, hey, that's really good. I actually like a lot of the stuff you do when you're doing mics. And he was like, yeah, no, your stuff's funny. And I was like, oh, no, blah, blah, blah. We both hate ourselves. Uh, And I think Pete Musto was like running the mic. And so us three talked for a good bit. um, And then when I would go out to mics, I would talk to them more than a lot of the other comics. Just because it was like that vibe. When there's 12 comics in a room, I'm not going to hang out with all of them equally. I'm going to hang out with the guys that are like, Pete is always wearing a comic book t-shirt or a parody of a comic book t-shirt, and I used to spend like a hundred bucks a week on comics, so we would gab about that. Max likes the same cartoons like Futurama and The Simpsons that I like, so we would do that. Kevin Tit has punk tattoos. I used to live in punk houses. I've been in a touring band, so we would always talk about music and stuff like that. And uh, they had a text, the four of them, Um, and Max tells the story where he's like, and I felt like I was, I wanted to add Andrew, but I didn't know how the other guys would take it. And I'd be like, I think we're all in the same vibe. And he just kind of threw it out there. And he was like, hey, Andrew's going to help talk about this comedy thing. Or like it just introduced to a group text that was goofy. Mm. Uh, Maybe we were planning a video. I don't remember why. Um, but then once there was the five of us in a group text, we just started riffing and rolling, and we are all kind of on the same page as far as like, stand up is fun, but it, this isn't the only thing we're all trying to do, and that sometimes sounds foreign to people that are like, I'm a stand up. I go out and I do my mics and I do my time and I write my jokes. And I'm like, yeah, cool, but what about videos? What about sketches? What about satirical songs? And they're like, No. And you're like, fine, I don't know what to tell you, but I'm gonna miss this stand-up mic because we're gonna film a stupid Instagram bit. And so that probably started two and a half, three years ago.
0: Yeah.
1: Where we were able to like, you know, do sketches at the one sketch show in DC. And then we're all bouncing ideas off of each other in a group text. And then we tell that bar, we want to do a night where we do like a 70-minute show. And they let us. And then we have fun and we retool that show and we make it 90 minutes with our guests. And then we do it again. And then we're like, we can take this on the road. So we started touring these shows on quick little three- to five-day tours. You know, up to Maine and back down, up to Pittsburgh and back down, just doing the same show over and over again in some janky places. And then we would try to do it once a month in D.C., every other month at two different places. But we made sure to let people know this is a themed sketch show with videos, PowerPoints, music, and stand-up. And people are like, damn, you put all of that in a show? And we're like, um, I I guess that wasn't really our goal, but we wanted to make we wanted to make shows that we would want to go to, because we'd been all going to stand up for two and a half, three years now, and it's the same comics and it's a lot of the same jokes. You know, I don't want to know this person's opinion on DC weed laws. That's a joke premise that has died, and so we're like, well, yeah, we're going to try to create something a little bit different that's more engaging that's more fun that showcases people who aren't stand-ups who are writing comedy in their houses people who are doing after effects animation people who are doing character work there's no outlet in dc and that's what we wanted to do and if there's no outlet and we're already doing it we might as well create the outlet and so that's just kind of been the process for the two and a half three years we've been together kind of churning out content
0: I mean you had mentioned like the five of you just basically getting together and deciding, you know, to do a show as the five of you. Like how does that first show go like um comparative time, to like, you know, the the open mics that you've been performing at and whatever else is happening in the in the city.
1: So I might I might have my facts wrong because my short-term and long-term memory are nothing. But I remember we we did our show premises, the first show I think we did, or the first show I really remember us doing, was in like an art gallery space that was a friend of Pete's, and the theme was that we lived in a bunker, and it was like written out sketch, and we, you know, Somebody's using all the toilet paper, and we're setting up the premise of being like, nuclear war has happened, and we're going to be down here for two months, and antics will ensue. And then we would do, I think, maybe five to seven minute sketches with this premise, and then we would leave stage and bring on a comic that isn't in our group. And then one of us would do comedy. And then they would get off stage and we would do another sketch. And we did like three sketches and six comics, something like that. So we had a comic start, did a sketch, two comics, did a sketch, two comics, did a sketch, and a comedian close out. Okay. And we took that concept to a couple different places. I think we, do- we did that show three times. And that's the thing that we love is the more times we get to do a show with a theme the better it gets. And so from there, we were like, okay, well, now we could actually write it to do individual bits. I want to do this character. I want to bring a PowerPoint. Okay, next show. You'll do a PowerPoint, you'll do a thing, and we'll do a three-person sketch. Done. And so then we started looking at shows as, you know, seven-minute segments. Is this going to stand-up, character, sketch, stand-up, music, powerpoint stand up you know and that's how we kind of started to carve these things together
0: how much would you like say your time is divided your comedy time between doing stand up now and doing sketch
1: other forms i would say that like the sketch and the videos take up almost all of my personal creative time um, because I do I do video work for a living, so when we want to do a video bit, man on the street, we want to have a specific video intro. I'm always down to shoot and edit it. Um, that's kind of the skill set I want to hone. I do stand up because it's fun and I love it, but at the end of the day, I don't think I'll ever have the desire to, you know, mortgage a house on stand up money. Because Mm -hmm. I know the type of dedication that takes, and I know the type of life that is. And I have so much more fun paying my bills doing video uh, that I don't really want to mess up that balance. But at the same time, I've never paid my bills with stand-up, so I might love that even more. But it seems like a chapter that will go unread, which is fine. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, stand-up is maybe, maybe once a week at this point, you know, and... A lot of the character stuff I do is like, you know, I'm writing jokes, but they're written for a character. So there's good setups and punchlines. But my name is Todd Twix and I'm a time traveler from the Terminator universe. And, you know, those jokes only work when I'm in like a torn up shitty leather jacket talking about what happens if Elizabeth Warren's cyborg is elected for another 20 year term. You know, like whatever this weird universe I created is. It doesn't work uh, doing stand-up. I don't have enough current metro and dating jokes to really, you know, supplement, you know, because the character is on a deadline and it's what I have the passion for. And so, you know, comedy is, I do write some stand-up jokes and I get out there when I can, but it is certainly a secondary function of comedy for me at this point, And I think rightfully so.
0: Did you expect that when you got
1: started as doing a stand
0: up? No, that
1: you would that another form would take over. No, not at all. I mean, well, and that in a way that's what I wanted, uh, but to get what I want, that's unheard of. So, it, it's been <laughs> like um it's different now in 2019, but when I first got to DC, you know, my thing was I want to kind of be the Judd Apatow of whatever scene I'm in, which is like yes, I do stand up. I, I am funny, but I'm more interested in the matrix of comedy. If I'm around four of the funniest people I know, that's great. I'm not in competition with them. I want to boost them. I want to put them in a video, because I've been doing video for such a long time, too. And if I write a sketch, I'd rather write a sketch with a friend in mine who can crush these jokes... Or have a friend come to me with chokes and me help turn that into something that works on camera because that's different than stand-up. That's what I've always wanted to do, and I. but at the same time, I never was telling myself, I want to do this in a way that you know, looks like this. I need to have my own show. I need to have my own channel. I have to be in charge of this. I'm just like a loosey-goosey guy, and I'm like hey, if the opportunity comes, I'll take it. And I'll try to create the opportunity, but it can look like anything. I'm not here to do one thing or another. I'm just here to make sure whatever I'm doing, I'm doing well. And now, you know, I look back and sometimes I'm getting Facebook reminders Two years ago, you were sharing this, uh, which was a tour we did, and the theme was that we were going to found our own new nation. And I remember that theme being good. I remember the work we put into the videos. I remember how silly it is. And I can't believe that that was two years ago. And we're making no money just going out there to get this off of our back, just going out there to hang out as friends. And now... We're doing like shows at the DC improv where people are paying money and we get to keep the money they pay. And I'm (laughs) like, oh, wow. You know, I wasn't doing this so that I could do a show at the DC improv or so that, you know, I demand that when we do work, we need to get compensated because that's what artists and consummate professionals do. Man, I'm just out here trying to like be funny and like be funny with my friends and give an opportunity for. You know, people who are kind of obscured in the comedy scene to have a chance to really shine in a way that stand up open mics as they run are not giving people a chance to shine. And I'm getting to do all of that. And it, yeah, I wouldn't change it. It certainly was a goal, but I didn't know it would look like this. And I'm happy it looks this way.
0: Uh, you mentioned your shows at the DC Improv, and I know there's one coming up. How would you describe the current iteration of what a midnight
1: gardener's league show is like (sighs) exhausting. Uh, (laughs) So we do a different themed show. Every show Uh, we might reprise a theme, but the sketches will change. The format will change. The narrative will change, but we might keep the core tenant of an idea. Like our most recent, recent show was a night of fine dining. And so That's a theme we've done before, Um, but the first one, I was the maitre d' and I introduced different elements of a five-star restaurant. The one we did at the DC Improv, Pete was the main chef and he was a celebrity chef opening his ninth attempt at trying to not go into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And so the food critic he had to impress was also his wife, things like that, so Uh, This month, the theme is a late night talk show called Thought Leaders, T-H-O-T. And it is a me and Max are hosting a late night talk show as two idiots, which isn't a stretch. And we want to learn things. But instead of going out and learning, we decided to create a space where people could come to us. So we're going to do monologue shtick. We're going to do uh you know segments between bands and stand up comedians and sit down interviews with characters and there's a you know we're going to do thought experiments you know things like that um and then that that's what rounds it out to being a full 90 minute show and i would say that is our strength as a group is it's not just booking a weird show with a lot of bizarre acts and videos and PowerPoint presentations. We spend a lot of time conceiving of the theme and making sure that our job as the Midnight Gardeners is to set up the explanation and the flow of the show so that every act we have on it is able to execute what they're doing perfectly. So it doesn't just seem like chaos. It's not random acts. Our comedy and our sketches and our reason for getting up there is so that we can explain the concept of the show with jokes and continue to keep that narrative alive throughout the entire show while giving it a three-act structure with heroes and villains. Okay. Um, We're trying to put all of that on a bumper sticker so people know (laughs) what we're doing.
0: I'm always curious. Do you have a set of a favorite center live cast member,
1: favorite cast member, Idios Mio. Um, I remember man, when I was young, I, I was part of the Will Ferrell generation. Uh, that that's yeah. when like SNL was like really talking to me. Uh, and I still loved like Sandler and Chris Farley and the David Spade era of it all. But, um, you know they're like a juggernaut of sketch for sure. But like the Amy Poehler Tina Fey era was like when I was piped in and paying attention. Um, but favorite favorite cast member, I don't know. I mean, I guess I would say Will Ferrell because he got a lot of the attention. Um, mm-hmm. but it was like all of them together. With the sketches they were doing, like the show felt so good all the time.
0: Right. So
1: it, it maybe I'm like that's my era, but I can't think of one specific person, you know, because I loved Chevy Chase, I loved Eddie Murphy, but you know, at, as I'm learning and as our culture is demanding, as it should, you you don't stay a hero forever unless you're really working towards it. And so to say Eddie right. Murphy was my favorite means yeah his sketches from x amount of time ago were okay uh but he hasn't put out a good movie in 20 years and if you watch his stand-up specials you know the first 10 minutes are him saying the f-word
0: it's And yeah. I'm like,
1: "Oh, yeah. cool. Like I liked getting in the hot tub, but is that a hill I'm willing to die on?" Oh, no. <laughs> same with like Chevy Chase and you're like good at that era the national lampoon stuff was killer but you know him being a bother on community and being old and not releasing anything and still staying in his ways you're like oh you're not really a comedy hero but you've got good bits so yeah and you know similar to like it's hard to say i love will ferrell and it's like, okay, out of his last five most recent movies, which ones were good? And that's when I start to break a cold sweat because I don't think that... what What is it? Dr- Ride Along or something? You know, like... Uh, uh,
0: he did Get hired. Yeah, Betting the House. Holmes and Watson. I'm like,
1: N- Pass. Yeah. Which is a bummer, but uh, that era, for sure, was my time. It's the... Like
0: this is something that I haven't really processed, but I've been like, now that you mentioned it, you know, with Eddie Murphy, with Will Ferrell, the idea that as these performers and creators get older, their target audience stays the same age and you age out of that group so quickly. Like, you know, like there was a, there was a point where I was in that sweet spot for Will Ferrell movies and I'm not anymore. Like those Will Ferrell movies, don't like the new
1: welfare movies don't speak to me
0: at all. I don't
1: think they speak to anyone. And I think that that's part of the problem is like when you're making good art, you are making it despite your environment. You are working flipping bagels at three in the morning to get home and finish your script or make your painting or get on stage and tell your jokes. And you know, when you've got 10 bedrooms and 12 bathrooms and you wake up and you're like, okay, I gotta be funny. It's like, man, man, I, it, I feel like it's just gotta be harder and it's not just money it's like the 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 tenacity to prove yourself at SNL is a fire that will burn inside of you and then 20 years later what is Will Ferrell or Adam Sandler you know what are they really trying to prove and they're not trying to prove anything they're just trying to do another movie and they want it to be funny and they, they're gonna punch it up but you know, Will Ferrell isn't going to bed with, you know, anxiety over Holmes and Watson like he probably was when he did Night at the Roxbury. All right. And, you know, you're just yeah, like, it's, it's, that's, that's, that's part of the, you got to keep giving a shit. And it, that's just harder to do the older you get and certainly the more successful you become.
0: Yeah. It's that old um, Simpsons episode where Krusty goes back and tries stand up comedy again yeah because he's a sellout and he's like what's the deal with my butler not getting the schmutz off my garter belts like (laughs) you know like i i definitely feel that way where there's a level of success where your real life doesn't matter like is no longer relatable and you can't gleam comedy
1: from it precisely or you You uh, are comparing yourself to the you in your past. And you're like, okay, well, this was funny and this is how I see humor. But you're not looking at comedy is not you. It's a thing you're taking part in. And, you know, for somebody like Jerry Seinfeld, who dates 17-year-olds and is a real piece of shit, uh, to say that college campuses are too PC, well, that's just because you don't want to write better jokes. You just want to write the jokes you write which is fair and comes with consequences, such as people thinking you're not funny or not trying or not doing anything worth time, which is true for people who are involved in comedy or staying abreast to comedy in a way that he isn't. So,
0: yeah, and. His his audience was never college students to begin with. So, why would you think? Well, right. But when I hear, you're 60 years old, why would you want to go back and like care about that audience at all?
1: Right. And then, well, it's just when I hear a, a white male comic say, you know, people are getting too PC. I'm like, oh, okay. So, when your punchline is the word tranny and people don't laugh, you think the crowd is wrong? Or. You're a bad person and you're not aware that you're punching down because you don't have queer and trans friends because you're a rich 50 year old who thinks it's okay to date 17 year olds or whatever their specific situation may be. Uh, But, you know, and that's what I feel like with Dave Chappelle. He's like, y'all are being too PC. I'm like, no, you're writing the jokes you would have written in 2000, and it is not the year 2000. The end. Like, be better. If you want to be the best, be the best. But currently, as it stands, when, when you compare the trans journey to saying somebody who is Asian self-identifying as an African-American, you don't understand the trans journey. That's why that joke sucks. It's not because it's about trans people. It's because you're ignorant.
0: Yeah, you're totally not paying attention to what's happening in the world. Right. And,
1: and, um, and, and honestly, like who, who can blame him when he is... Here's my $20 million special, and I literally could fart into the mic, and people will still eat it up because of my clout. Like, what, you, you know, like it, when you want to lose weight, you're really into working out. Once you lose the weight, you're kind of like, great, now I just maintain. And, it, it, you know, it, comedy is different. You have to keep pushing even when you don't need to push.
0: Uh, so you've come from the world of stand-up comedy. Uh, you have this collective with the Midnight Gardeners that produces a show on a fairly regular basis and, perform. you know, mm-hmm. uh, creates a ton of material. What is something, uh, a piece of advice that you would give to someone that's new to the comedy world?
1: Um, someone new to the comedy world is how you keep going. Like, truly, don't stop. If you think it's shitty, it's Probably because it is, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't post it and grow from it. There's a lot to be said. It's, it's a very unique time we live in where our digital footprint lasts forever. And some of the first videos I ever did, like the Louis Crisper's video I sent to you, that's not good comedy. It's not funny. It's not going to go viral. There is no audience. But I had a blast making it. And because I had a blast making it, I kept making stuff like it but better cuz i know what that one was lacking when i watched it a year later mm. so it's like you know yeah you you think your jokes aren't good a year into comedy is because they're not but in order to do something great you have to do something good and in order to do anything good you have to make something bad and in order to make something bad you have to start with no knowledge of that thing and that is the journey to greatness is The journey to continually making content, to making it funny, to finding your voice. Finding your voice isn't showing up and it being there. It is trying on a thousand hats until the thousand and one hat fits perfect.
0: Right. And then finally, um, you know, like you mentioned, you know, being someone that went to like, you know, multiple mics a week moving to D.C., trying to do as many mics as you can, joining this collective, doing shows, traveling at the seaboard on your way to festivals and stuff. Why comedy? Why is comedy hooked in and is what you spend a good chunk of your time doing?
1: There's nothing better than people laughing. Laughter is joy and it's fun and it's involuntary. And it's like, man, you just you do something and the reaction you want is for people to have a good time and love it and laugh. And when they do, you're like, wow, you can't fake that. You, it's, there's truly nothing that I can say that puts, puts it into a value of just like putting, doing something and people laughing at it. You're like, man, that's, that's joy that's fun that's happiness that's the only reason life is worth living is laughing
0: mm. yeah I, I, I tend to
1: agree with you it's hard work right. though but yeah you know if it ain't hard work it ain't work <laughs> thanks andrew oh no worries
0: Andrew and the rest of the Midnight Gardeners League will be performing Thought Leaders at the DC Improv on Sunday, December 8th at 7 p.m. Find more information at midnightgardenersleague.com. You can follow them on Instagram at Midnight Gardeners, on Twitter at 12amgardeners, and on Facebook at Midnight Gardeners League. My first sketch is a Philly Sketch Fest production. You can find out more information at PhillySketchFest.com, which is slowly being updated and renovated follow philly Sketchfest on instagram at philly Sketchfest where you might have noticed a little teaser for next year the music on this episode is by the band nono which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com like my first sketch on facebook follow the show on twitter rate review subscribe wherever you get your podcasts this is josh Hyam. thanks for listening go see some comedy